0: I'm actually pretty fascinated by the reality that knowledge, what we know, what we think, doesn't actually always change our behaviors. For example, I'm aware that eating a whole row of cookies in the tray will ruin the hard work that I've put in at the gym. I'm aware of that. Yet I eat the whole row of cookies. I'm aware that in order to build the hard chiseled body that I want, Uh, To become the envy of every other pastor, like, you know, I have this vision where I'm at a, like a, like a pool party with other pastors and we're all wearing our, we're not wearing any shirts. If I want the abs in front of the other pastors, I have to put in the work and it's more than just, you know, putting the quality and the quantity of my workout. It's really just as much about my diet. Uh, And yet there I am 1030 at night, looking at the cookies, talking to the cookies, warning the cookies of impending doom. And then uh, with some weird sadistic giant voice, I'm like, so long, sucker!" And then I eat eight of them. And then I lay silently on the couch in some lethargic uh, whole roll of cookie shame glaze. And I'm aware that that's how it affects me. And so what we know doesn't always change what we do. We know about the dangers of smoking, yet people still smoke. No amount of data regarding football players smashing their heads against other football players' heads has changed the minds of any football players from smashing each other and continuing on with their head-cracking lifestyle. We know that if a person is in a toxic relationship, that they should get out of that relationship. Yet for some reason, what do we see? We see people keep going back to the person over and over again. So in many areas of life, knowledge just isn't enough. There seems to be a gap between what we say we know and what actually affects and improves our lives. So, I believe this gap can actually happen in our spiritual lives as well. And at Pacific City Church, we believe this we believe that it is impossible for our spiritual maturity to exceed our emotional maturity. What is emotional maturity? Well, emotional maturity is a term we use to describe people who are differentiated in how they live and how they treat others, how they allow or disallow their emotions to affect themselves or others. Emotionally mature people are emotionally healthy people. They're balanced people. They work hard to live their lives with integrity. The goal on the wall is to become an emotionally mature person. Now, with regard to spirituality and being spiritually mature, uh, maybe you've heard me discuss before, uh, spirituality flourishes in many different kinds of ways here in Los Angeles. Some of us study the planets to figure out who we should date or what furniture we should buy. Uh, others of us go to Soul Cycle or sign up for a hot yoga class to clear our minds, to um, focus on what's most important, and actually to connect with the psychological benefits of group movement uh, exercise. Others of us use religion and other traditional forms of faith to tap into a higher, powerful being, bigger than ourselves. But sometimes our knowledge about spiritual things doesn't actually change our lives. And what I've found is that even though we might believe that we're actually spiritual, or spiritually in tune or connected, it might not actually change how we live or how we treat people, our emotional maturity. And so when something like this happens, we refer to it at this church, we call it an authenticity gap. An authenticity gap is the space between what we claim to be, what we project to be in our relationships at church, at work, uh, how we project ourselves in a romantic relationship with the person we're trying to impress, what we put out on social media through Instagram or Facebook or whatever you go to. And um, and then the difference between that and what we actually think, what we actually say about people, how we actually treat others, how we actually handle our private struggles and our addictions and all of life's issues and anxieties. And so everyone, we believe, is susceptible to this authenticity gap, what we project to be and what we actually are. And at Pacific City Church, we also believe that proximity to spiritual activities doesn't necessarily make us more spiritual or more emotionally mature. Just because we go to the spin class, just because we go to the church service or the music festival doesn't mean we're actually maturing spiritually. There needs to be something that happens in us That's bigger than just our proximity to spiritual activities. Something must be cultivated in the subterranean levels of our heart. And so over the past few weeks, I've been talking about stories of Jesus. And we've we've been talking about how God offers us a different way of thinking about spirituality. And what we see is that Jesus actually desires that each of us become more emotionally mature. He doesn't just want us to seem like we're religious or spiritually connected. He actually wants us to change and to grow. And so he offers us a different way of relating to God. So I've called today's talk, How to Keep It Real. Uh, will you pray with me? And we'll get started and take a look at a few verses. Uh, God, uh, we welcome you here. And God, we want to keep it real. We want to not project something that's not of you. That's not something that's fake. Uh, We're here because we want you and we want it to really affect our lives. And so, God, we give you our time together. Help me to speak as I should. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to be discussing the story of the lost son. It is one of the most discussed and referenced parables of all of all of Jesus' time. So maybe you've heard it referred to as the prodigal son. Now, contrary to popular opinion, prodigal does not mean wayward or rebellious or uh, bad boy. Uh, A prodigal is actually somebody who has spent everything until they have nothing left to spend. And what we will see is that this is the story of the prodigal son, but can also be used to describe uh, the father in the story. And the father gave everything to his sons, and then he gave even more. The story is really about a prodigal God. So we're going to take a look at Luke 15. We read in verses one and two, it says this. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I'm going to pause right there. The Pharisees think that Jesus must be watering down God's teaching in order to gain lots of people to follow him. That he's like telling them whatever they want to hear. He's excusing them from their sin and from their issues. And he's, you know, so he's just doing it because he wants to be more famous and more powerful. And the Pharisees are always concerned about their power and they feel like they're losing it to Jesus. And so in response to these these religious leaders muttering... They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he does this. Jesus replies to their uppity attitudes and he tells them three parables, which are stories that are fictitious stories with a purpose, with a moral to them. He tells one story about a sheep, one story about a lost coin, and one about the lost son. So we're going to look at the one about the lost son, lost sons, actually. We read in verse 11 and 12, it says this, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. I'm going to tell the rest of the story, but hold on a second. The younger son, right here, I want to tell you this. The younger son's request is totally uncommon. In fact, in Middle Eastern culture, this is completely insulting. Essentially, the younger man, the younger brother is saying to the dad, Dad... I don't care about you. I don't care about our family. I wish I had your stuff. And I don't want to wait till you die. I want it now. I wish you were dead. So please give me your stuff. Please give me my share of the inheritance. And, um, you know, that'll be good. And surprisingly, the father gives it to him. Now, Jesus is making kind of a point here that, like, normally the father would not give him this stuff. But in this story, he does. He gives him. He's generous to the younger son. And so... This is what else this is the next thing that happens. We look at verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set out for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he had him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now, often we think about these verses, we think about the sins of the younger brother, his rebellion, and then all of a sudden how he came to his senses with his hat in his hand and he came back to dad and cleared everything up. But remember, Jesus told this story to religious people and the key to the story is found in the father's interaction with the elder brother. So Jesus is telling the story to two sons and he's including, or two types of people, two sons. And he's actually including the most common ways that we think about life. And in life, there's like two really big philosophies that usually people subscribe to or they think about. One is moral conformity and the other is self-discovery. Moral conformity and self-discovery. Moral conformity says, I'm not gonna do what I want, but what tradition and community tell me to do. Self-discovery says, I'm the only one that can decide what's right for me, what's wrong for me. I'm going to live as I want to live and I'll find my true self and my happiness that way. The moral conformist would say, you immoral people, you people who do your own thing, you're the problem with the world. The moral people are the solution. And the self-discovery person would say, you bigoted people, you say you have all the answers, that you have the truth, you're the problem with the world. It's the progressive people who are the solution. And what Jesus is saying here by highlighting both of them between the younger brother and the older brother is that both approaches are wrong. And he redefines three things for us. Sin, lostness, and hope. Let's talk about those things. First one is sin. Jesus redefines sin. According to Jesus, sin isn't just doing bad things. Sin is when people turn good things into ultimate things. And whenever we build our life on, uh, it will drive us and it will enslave us. Sin happens when we build our identity around good things, our self-worth, our happiness, or anything other than God. Sin happens when we look to our careers or we look to romances to save us, to give us the things we can only find in God. And when we look to something other to God to find our worth, it ultimately leads us to Drivenness to addictions, to anxiety, obsessiveness, envy of others, and even resentment, resentment like we see in the elder brother. And the story reveals that even though the elder brother had built his identity around his moral record of trying to be good, it didn't matter because he's just as broken. He's just as weird. He's just as selfish as the younger brother. He is just as demanding. He makes a look, father, you never even gave me a goat. Like, he's angry. And you see, the elder brother, he didn't love the father either. He wasn't interested in a relationship with the father. He just wanted the father's stuff, the inheritance, the farm. And the fact that, like I mentioned, he didn't even get the goat. And, like, it isn't the elder brother's sin that's actually keeping him from the father. But rather, it's his pride and his moral record. Both sons are the same. Both resented the father and wanted his stuff. And they just tried to get it very different ways. One did it by disobeying. The other did it by obeying. And friend, let me ask you a keep it real question. Are you an elder brother? Are you an elder sister? Do the good things you do, are they connected to your pride? Are they keeping you from God? There's two ways that we can tell for an elder brother or sister. It's usually when we're bargaining with God or when we feel entitled bargaining. You think, well, if God would just give me this or that, this romantic relationship, this promotion, this increase in my salary, influence in my church, then I'll serve him. Then I'll love him. And I'll give the church way more money if that would just happen. I, I would totally love him more. And we also see this in bargaining With God, when they feel that God has let them down on the bargain they feel that they tried to make with God. If something in life happens that breaks them, like a divorce or a sudden job loss, they might say, look, after all I've done for you, I've served you, I've served the church, I'm nice to people, I've sacrificed my dreams for my child, and this is how you repay me. But we also see it in entitlement. The elder brother and sisters tend to compare themselves with what they have with other people and they feel jealous and envious and they feel entitled when they don't get what they think that they deserve. They might say, "I work hard, I pray, I do the right thing all the time, but I don't have a happy life like her. Why does she get that stuff? What has she ever done to deserve that?" And entitled people feel entitled because they believe that that what they do now Uh, is better than what other people are doing. They feel superior to people who they deem as sinners and judgy. Um, They judge others through that. And so when good things happen for a sinner, their harsh judgment kicks in and they compare and their comparison ultimately stirs up that sense of entitlement, what they think they deserve. Friend, are you an elder brother or a sister? Entitlement and bargaining are great ways to tell if you want something from God, but you have no interest in God himself. So not only does Jesus redefine and widen the scope of sin, he actually redefines lostness. And what we see here is that you don't have to be a bad boy to be lost. You can be a pretty good boy and still be lost. In fact, the elder brother's sin is more dangerous because uh, he's unaware that he's lost. He's blind the fact that he's lost he feels like he's right and he's justified and that his stupid dad is the problem he's the one that's wrong you know the elder brother is kind of like a stereotypical dad who's driving his family on some road trip and he's gotten lost and this is when i was growing up before google maps on your phone dads were notorious human beings for getting lost on trips and refusing to ask for directions And mom, of course, is in the passenger seat with the, you know, saying in the most loving of tones, like, you're lost. And we should stop and get directions because the kids have to go to the bathroom when we're already late for the thing. And honey, we're getting more lost. And it's just, you know, the whole scene, you know what I'm talking about. And so the reason dads refuse to ask for directions is they actually believe they know where they're going and they're not lost. They actually think they know how to get to where they need to go. Their pride is blinding them from the fact that they're getting more and more lost. And you know, it can be just like that in our spiritual lives. We think we know where we're going. We have some evidence that we're headed in the right direction. We know how to pray. We know how to serve the poor from time to time. We're not like the Pharisees in the Bible. We're what people in 2016 would call woke. Um, It's 2018, so don't use that anymore. But 2016 woke. And... and so uh, you know, this is exactly the issue. For some of us, it's our confidence, it's our pride in what we do that actually keeps us from realizing that we're on the right, wrong track, that we're lost. Our pride can sometimes reinforce how actually lost we are. So the question is this: if it's if uh, if it's not uh, if you were lost, how would you know? And if, would you have the humility to admit it? And we so, so we see that Jesus redefines sin, he redefines lostness, and those don't work. So what does he do? He offers us a third way by redefining hope. Jesus redefines hope. Jesus leaves his listeners with an unresolved story. The story ends with a party, we get that, and it's a big celebration, and things are happening, and it's so loud that the elder brother can hear it happening outside, But we also also see that the elder brother doesn't go into the party. It's unresolved. The father goes out and invites him. But we don't see that the father rejected the elder brother. But the elder brother still hasn't chosen to go in. He's hanging out there. And so the father left the choice up to the elder brother. And in the same way, Jesus left that choice up to the Pharisees. And in the same way, further, Jesus leaves that option up to us. So how does Jesus actually redefine hope? Well, Jesus redefines hope for younger brothers and sisters and older brothers and sisters because he offers himself. You know, to the younger brothers and sisters, Jesus says, no matter how lost you think you are, I love you. No matter what you've done, it doesn't matter. You have a home with me. Come on in. I will help you discover who you truly are and who you truly were made to be. And to older brothers and sisters, uh, Jesus says, I've always loved you. I've always loved you. All I have is already yours. You don't have to do anything to get my stuff. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to impress me. You're loved. Now go and do good in the world because you can, not because you have to. You're free. And the reason Jesus can offer this hope to people like elder brothers and younger brothers is because this is really the essence of the gospel. And the gospel means good news. The good news is really, really different. It is radical because we believe that Jesus lived on earth and that he was wrongfully executed by religious people and that he died. And three days later, he came back to life. And because he came back to life, he has authority and power for our lives. And so when Jesus' followers turn to him, we see that he offers hope, but he offers power for every area of our life. Jesus has power over the wrongs that we've done and the wrongs that have been done to us. He has power over the pain we've experienced, the diseases we experience, and even death. Jesus has power to mend broken hearts, to heal wounds we've experienced from others, that the things that others have said and done to us in the past. God can fill our hearts with a sense of love. He can give us the power to forgive. God has the, Jesus has the power over anxiety. He has the power to give us insight into our finances, our career path, uh, even our biological baby-making time clocks, for those of you that want to have kids. And we see that there's power and new hope for relationships and our marriages. There's hope for our family of origin. There's hope for our neighborhood. There's hope for our churches. There's hope for the city, and there's hope for this world. We believe that because Jesus died and rose again, that he is victorious overall. And here's the best part. Everybody is invited to the victory party. No matter your race, your gender, or your ethnicity, you're invited to the party. No matter how unsuccessful you have been overcoming your long battle with addictions or anxiety, you're invited to the party too. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, you're invited to the party. Just as the father invited his two sons to the party, we are invited to the party. The only thing we need to do is go in the room. We need to show up to the party. He invited his sons into a real relationship. So too does God invite us into a real relationship with him. And I want to talk to you for a minute before I close about a real relationship with God. Because I feel like this is the thing that really makes the difference between who we project to be and who we actually are. The way we develop a relationship with God is we learn to discern and recognize God's voice. If you can hear God's voice, if you can understand what he's saying to you in your mind, everything else is rock and roll, baby. Because, okay? So in this church, I want you to know that we value, Pacific City Church, we value God's power power. In God's presence. It's one of our stated values. And, friend, let me tell you, it's easier to calm your anxiety if you can hear the voice of God. And it's easier to plan and think about the future if you're learning to hear His voice. And it's easier for you to live without shame and guilt if God has spoken a new, fresh word over your life. You're loved, you are valuable. And you are made for more. And it's one thing for me to be like, hey, you're loved. Hey, you're valuable. But when God does something particular in your heart and in your mind and you can't shake it, oh, man, that's for real. That's what i talk about with rock and roll. Yeah, cool. The lights are so bright, I can't see who's clapping, but thank you. (laughs) So learning to discern and recognize God's voice. This is essential. Like, what are we doing here if we can't learn to discern and recognize God's voice? What are we doing here? We're just sitting in weird rows listening to a dude talk. I don't like it. We have to learn to discern and hear God's voice. And so learning to discern and recognize God's voice, you know, it's a lot like learning the voice of a loved one, isn't it? Take my wife, for example. Over time, I've learned to recognize her voice, how she sounds. I know, like, if I hear her voice, I know it's her, like like her audible voice. But I, you know, but I know, now I know her tones. I think I do, at least. I mean, I know when she's happy. I know when she's sad. And I know when I need to hide in my room under the bed. But there's more than that. I know what she sounds like even when she's not around. Even when she's not with me, if somebody comes to me and says something, they say, Hey, you know, your wife said this or that. Well, I pretty much know if that person is telling the truth because I know her. I've learned to understand what she would say and not say. I know if that person is telling me the truth. Why? Because I've learned how she thinks. I've learned how she acts. I understand her worldview. I've learned all these things because I've spent time and I've grown to know her. And it is the same way with learning to discern and recognize God's voice. When I spend time with God through prayer and Bible reading, and when I spend time with other Jesus followers, whether it's here or getting coffee or a new community group starting this month, uh, I learn to recognize his voice. I recognize who he is and what he sounds like. I learned to discern when someone is saying something that doesn't sound like God from something that does. You know, the other thing about learning to discerning and recognizing God's voice is that that it doesn't happen overnight. And I've found that uh, learning to discern God's voice uh, and see spiritual and emotional growth is a lot like committing to the gym. If you go to the gym for the first time, after not going for a while, a few things will happen to you. One. You will be inspired. You'll feel like super pumped. You're like, I'm back in the gym, baby. And you'll you'll feel good. And you might even be a little sore, but you will not see any changes after the first day. You might feel the changes. Your body may be sore. You actually, after a few days, you may experience more energy, but you really don't see the changes. Yet, if I commit myself to the gym regularly, if I get up every day and I go to the gym And do what I'm supposed to do. If I follow the regular regimen I've set out for myself, my body will transform and I will experience the changes over time. I will grow stronger. And then all of a sudden, someone will call and say, hey, I need help moving a couch down the stairs of my apartment. And I'll be like, no problem. And I'll do it. And I'll be like, that was way easier than it used to be. Something has happened. I can't pinpoint the day or the time, but something has happened. And it's the same thing with the Christian walk. When we learn to discern and recognize God's voice, it happens over time. When we commit ourselves to regular Bible reading uh, when we uh, or prayer or spending time with other Christians, we will grow. We might not see the changes right away, but we will feel them. We'll feel that we're changing. And, but, and then over time, our lives will begin to transform. We'll improve how we're hearing from God. And what we're applying when we hear from God. And then one day it happens. We'll look back a couple years. We'll say, wow, I've really changed. I've really grown. I don't say the mean things that I used to. I'm becoming a nicer human being. Oh my goodness, I'm becoming more generous with my finances. I remember I was never generous, but I'm becoming more generous. And all of a sudden we can't, we won't be able to pinpoint the exact moment, but we'll see that we have changed. How do we do this? How do we practice this? Well, um, there's prayer and meditation. There's community. And then there's study. You know, prayer and meditation, I'd encourage you to take five minutes every day to practice listening prayer. Our favorite, Eric Amos, is one of the people here. Um, Actually, he trains people on how to hear from God. Like he does this thing called listening prayer. It develops your skills so that you're better at discerning what's from God and what's not God. What's the chicken sandwich that you ate and what's really God's voice. And then when someone says, oh, this is totally God and they they do like something we call prophecy. And sometimes people are right and sometimes people are wrong. He helps you to be able to discern that because we're all human and we're all fallible. And we all need to get better at hearing from each other, but also hearing from God. He actually teaches people and he teaches people in our church how to do this. He has a team. And it's our listening prayer team. And I would encourage you like, to learn to discern and recognize God's voice, but also the daily practice of getting up and saying, God, I'm here. I want to hear from you. Uh, and, um, and then just pray and say, God, uh, what do you want to do today? That is the best way. Getting in the regular routine. And if you wait for five minutes and just do that every day, it will feel like an eternity. And then you'll look at the clock. You're like, dude, it's only been 30 seconds. And really what's happening there is that like, it's really hard to calm our minds before God. But do that. Consider doing that. Uh, A second thing is uh, community. You know, join a community group. Um, There is a hole in our heart, our metaphorical heart, that only God can fill. But I believe that God has created a hole in our heart that only people can fill, that God refuses to fill. You see, God made us for a relationship with other people. And so we need other Jesus followers around us to learn from them, to grow from them, To understand, hey, that's not cool when you do this. Or, hey, this is really cool when you do this. Or uh, in a a community group that's been meeting now, we talked about affirming what we see in people. Say, hey, look, I see this in you. You're really gifted in this way. And you call that out of people and you have vision for their lives when other people don't have vision. And that's how you grow. So I'd encourage you to check out one of our community groups that's going to be launching. Everyone who follows Jesus should consider a community group. Why? Because, you know, like this is insufficient. Look, you looking at me on a stage while I talk is insufficient. Sufficient. Being with other Christians will help you to grow. And then, study. There's, uh, the Bible is really helpful uh, in understanding God. And I know it can be confusing, but like there's some things, so some tools that we have available for you that can help you to understand God's Word. And when we read and spend time in the Bible, the Holy Spirit, through His power, illuminates it so it makes sense to us. But then also, like, we can read books. Uh, there's a great book by uh, Gordon Fee called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. So if you've never read the Bible before and it's confusing, read that book too. uh, And I can provide that resource for you. And so, yeah, uh, another resource is uh, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. Um, this This is a book about discipline. And I don't mean consequences, but like when we discipline ourselves and position ourselves to hear from God, we'll hear from God. So it talks about different things like fasting and praying And like exercise and all these different things that can help us to commune and connect with God. Oh, and lastly, I've been talking about the prodigal son. If you want to read more about this approach that I've been talking about, I would check out the book called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. It's a really interesting view because really this story is about the elder brother because it's addressed to the Pharisees. So, back to where we started how to keep it real. You know, much of the Christian walk isn't taking these huge steps and jumping from mountaintop to mountaintop. There's some valleys in there too. Much of the Christian walk is simply this. It is simply left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. I hear God's voice on how to treat my spouse, right foot. I apply that knowledge and I work to treat her better. Left foot, I hear God leading me to be more generous with my finances. Right foot, I make a plan to follow through on being more generous with my finances. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. When we go through the daily routine of learning to hear God's voice and then obeying, we do this over and over again. Daily small steps, they will add up. We will have grown. We will see that we are different. We'll be be becoming the best version of ourselves. I think we'll start to see new things blossom in our lives. And we'll begin to see transformation in our relationships and in our work and in our neighborhoods. And we might not like everything that God says if we're doing the left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot approach to, to following God. But if we try it out, we will grow, I guarantee you, in our confidence. We'll start to see real fruit in our lives. And we won't be living in proximity to spirituality Uh, But we'll be tapped into his power and his presence. And we'll see that life doesn't need to be lived as younger brothers or elder brothers, younger brothers or older brothers, but instead we'll see ourselves becoming the family of God, which is way better, way more important. And that, my friends, is something worth living for. I'm going to pray for us, and I want you to stand. Will you stand with me?